everybody, this is Wayne, and this is the Green Pill Podcast. And over the last week, I've sort of been feeling like everybody in the world is talking about one and only one story. And that's not the war in Ukraine or climate change or something more important. Sadly, it seems like everybody in the world is talking about what happened between Will Smith and Chris Rock. Now, if you've been hiding under a rock, and I'll just clue you in is what happened. Will Smith walks up to the stage pretty brazenly and just slaps Chris Rock in the face in the middle of a national television presentation. I think it's a presentation of the award for best documentary. And then he goes back to a seat and curses him out. And the internet is ablaze. And just some evidence of this, I did a Google News search showing that the terms Will Smith slap generate 264 million hits in Google News. By way of comparison, the terms Ukraine crisis generate just 141 million hits, meaning that Will Smith's fight with Chris Rock is seen as approximately twice as important as a conflict that could lead to World War III and nuclear annihilation. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's actually a little sad. But maybe it's not so sad. And while my first reaction was to shake my head and kind of facepalm and say, oh my gosh, what is the media doing to us? After I reflected on this a little bit more, I realized there were some really important insights that could be generated and seen um, through the lens of this conflict between two very famous celebrities. And the reason I saw that is because of the guest I have on the podcast today, Moby, a musician, Grammy Award winner, and someone who went through a very similar experience 20 years ago at the MTV Video Music Awards. Um... I'll let Moby explain what happened. Uh, it was a fight between him and the rapper Eminem. And while there were a lot of eerie similarities between what happened 20 years ago and what happened this week, the end was very different. I think there's lessons for us all. So we go from this conversation and discussion about what happened in that fight between Moby and Eminem to thinking more broadly about why there's so much conflict in society, why there's so many wars, why we kill so many animals, why we destroy our earth the only home that we've got. And that initial trigger, um, understanding the conflict between two individuals, whether it's Moby and Eminem or Chris Rock and Will Smith, leads us down a pretty interesting path of thinking about how the blood flow in our brain could generate conflict or peace, how music can play a powerful role in calming all of our nerves and preventing violence and hurt. And about our respective beliefs about the prospects of the human race to overcome these sorts of conflicts. I'll give you a heads up, Moby's pessimistic, I'm much more optimistic. But where we agree, where we agree, is that to the extent we are going to change and make the world a peaceful and more sustainable place, it's going to depend on people like you finding your better angels. And there's some tips on how to do that in this podcast. So anyways, I've gone on. This is a great conversation with one of the smartest people I know. And um, I think you're just going to hear it yourself. So without further ado, here's Moby. Moby, I'm so excited to have you. Last conversation I had was uh, awesome, but by Zoom. Uh, first time I've hung out with you and recorded a conversation in person, and Griffith Park is as beautiful as you said. Well, I have to say, you're here on, it's kind of a chilly day, yeah. but it rained yesterday, and L.A., in the sort of like 36 hours after it rains, is the most beautiful place on the planet. So awesome. if you were to come back, say end of august when it's 115 degrees and you can't breathe the air you might not love it so fun. much but like right now like 
This is LA at its absolute nicest. Why, why is the rain make it more beautiful? Does something uh, come out of the park or are there insects I mean, it, or it, there flowers it, that bloom? Well, especially because we're in this like endless drought, uh, the plants get dusty, the plants mm. are dry and it rains. And all of a sudden there's this like, like last night as I was going to sleep with my windows open, there's this smell of like all the sage yep, yep. and all the, especially because it's spring, like everything's blossoming. Yeah. And I, so I don't know. And in terms of the air being clean, I think it's that like the storm comes through and it's followed by like air from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And so it just scrubs everything and it's clean and beautiful. This air does smell amazing. And and come to think of it, I actually had not thought of this possibly ever. There's something about the rain just always that seems to make the air smell better the next day. Yeah. Even if it's kind of miserable and dark outside, I the air still smells even a, better. The word is petrichor. Yeah. Which I mean, is it, the smell of, it's post-rain smell, I think. Petrichor. I think so. It's I'm just sure the someone, smell of rain or the smell of air it's, it's the with sm- the rain? I don't know if it's the smell of rain on the ground or the smell of, but it's, I yeah. think it's, I think it's the smell of rain. Yeah. Someone listening is probably like, what is this idiot talking about? It's absolutely not <laughs> Sorry that to all the ecologists on the podcast audience. But now that I'm old, I sort of like collect facts and then use them wrongly. <laughs> that sounds fun. Um, that makes a lot of sense because, uh, you know, air pollution and particular particulates in the air pollution, I used to be, I kind of still am, but I used to be an environmental lawyer a long time ago. And it's, it's kind of shocking how much just... The soot, not even just, mm-hmm. you know, the actual chemical pollutants in the air. There are chemical pollutants that are really bad for you. I mean, we've heard of ozone and obviously carbon dioxide, all these things. But just the soot in the air is actually one of the most dangerous things for you. And I imagine when it rains, the particulates go down a little bit. I mean, at least according to my weather app. Nice. You know, Good. and so I believe whatever yeah. it tells me. So it's a great day to have a podcast conversation outside. So I wish you all could be here and see the location we're in because it's beautiful and it smells great. Um, and then, of course, they can hear my neighbor's dog barking in the background <laughs> which makes for a nice ambience yeah um so i got a lot of l- things i'd like to talk to you about and, and i really appreciate the time because i know your time is short but given what's been in the news i um everyone's been talking about will smith in in what happened at the oscars on sunday and i have to say when i saw this it reminded me of something that happened 20 years ago with you and and I'm not just bringing this up just because, you know, it's going viral and everyone's talking about it, because I actually think there's a really important point to make about conflict. And, um, and I actually thought this is one of the, the first times it really registered to me that you were an activist. I think I vaguely knew you were vegan back when this happened. And I'm talking about the incident in 2002. Oh, with Eminem. With Eminem. I mean, to be fair, yeah. um, just because I assume a lot of people listening might not have even been alive back then or aware of it. So in Were you two, alive, Kayla? You were alive in, in 2002. Okay, at the MTV Video Music Awards at Radio City in New York, um, the producers had this idea that they would seat me behind Eminem, because Eminem really, oh, for whatever reason, doesn't didn't like me. I haven't talked to him in a very long time. You so know they, why he didn't like you. Well, I mean, I kind of... I, I You know exactly why I didn't like I you. I kind of criticized him for being a homophobe and a misogynist. Well, he, which he was. I mean, he even self-described himself as a homophobe. It's a little... I mean, you were, it, it was such a strange reaction because he used the F word. And I don't mean fuck. I mean F-A-G-G-O-T. Well, right? he's had... And I don't... I'm not looking to pick up a feud again, but it is kind of <laughs> mind-boggling to me that, like, the number of songs he has where he talks about brutally assaulting women and yeah. gay people and the responses they invite him to perform at the Super yeah. Bowl halftime. Like, so For clearly, sure. 
there is no such thing as ethical standards yeah. anywhere. But in any case, uh, 2002, the producers sat me behind Eminem and they had this idea that Triumph, the insult comic dog puppet, would come over and interview both of us. And so when the puppet, as operated by Robert Smigel, came over... To Wait, did they tell you about this beforehand, by the way? There was supposed to be this thing where he was going to interview both of us and it was okay. going to be funny, right. but the puppet came over, and this is the ridiculousness of it. And I don't even know if you can see this online because I think Eminem's people in Universal took it down because uh -huh. it's so ridiculous. Oh, you can see it, and everyone should go watch it. The I, puppet I watched it on came YouTube over, yesterday. <laughs> tried to interview Eminem, and he punched he had, the he puppet. He assaulted the puppet. So, like, that's where the comparison to Will Smith and Chris Rock fails is like will smith punched chris rock eminem punched a puppet, a puppet. <laughs> so i was unscathed like it was i was i was there when the puppet got punched yeah. but like clearly it's hard to have like too much ethical outrage at someone punching yeah. a little puppet and, and the other thing that was just eerily, eerily similar is that it seemed to me i i don't know if they told you they were planning to do this at a time but it seemed to me it was it was a big problem for the broadcast because I, I remember and I, I remember this and then I watched it again yesterday to make sure my recollection is correct that the broadcast kind of gets disrupted and they oh, quickly yeah. divert <laughs> to Christina Aguilera because they realize Eminem just assaulted someone on national television. This is not well, a good Eminem thing. Eminem assaulted a puppet. Let's he assaulted a puppet, like, a dog like, puppet. Like, I don't know what the like. And, and to be fair, the dog puppet was honestly, though, the other weird thing about that was the dog puppet hadn't actually said anything mean to him. He had been insulting you yeah. for like two minutes, and then he just goes and starts talking to Eminem, and Eminem is like standing up with an entourage, just like all these big guys around him, and they attack the puppet, yeah. and the, the broadcast gets disrupted, and they, they even, I think they cut off the audio, just like they did with Will Smith, and everyone's just like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. So did they tell you ahead of time this is going to happen? Oh, was yeah. He, just, and he, he knew but this I didn't, then. Because Robert Smigel, who is the voice of Triumph, the insult comic dog, yeah. is an old, friendly acquaintance of mine. Oh. And so I knew I was going to be ridiculed. Okay. Because that's what Triumph, the insult sure. comic dog, yeah. does and did. That's like, what comedians do. They roast people. And I, so I, they were like, so Smigel asked me, he was like, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, sure. What the hell? Like, yeah. it's it, like... I thought Triumph's insult comic dog was hilarious, even at his most offensive. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if the dog has gender, but the puppet has <laughs> gender. Like, but so I thought this was going to be funny, and it was also not to relitigate the past. But up until this moment, I didn't know that Eminem actually hated me that much. Yeah, because while I was sitting there, and this was really adorable, and I still have it somewhere. He drew a picture of him strangling me. Jesus. And handed it to me. But Jesus. what's a, two things about it? One, it was drawn really well. Like it's actually <laughs> like a surprisingly great drawing. But the other thing He's is a talented artist. The back of the drawing, he had started drawing it and wasn't happy with it. So he turned it over and drew it better. Wow. So so much effort into yeah. a cartoon of him strangling me. I should go figure out where that is because it's pretty funny. There's um, something metaphorically powerful about that. The fact that not only did he have to insult you, and then I think, I mean, well, yeah. tell the story what happened right after that, because it's... Oh, then... Do you my, remember what happened? It's kind of... So my understanding, I think he won an award yeah, He or won something. like album of the year or something and like then, that, and he goes up to Christina Aguilera, and, and everyone's like, what the hell's going on? Yeah, and people started booing, uh -huh. Yep. and he didn't know if they were booing him or booing me. Yeah. Um, I think they were booing him. I mean, because he was being a little 
I mean, he just attacked obnoxious. a puppet. And yeah, I mean, seen this. so in any case, it was twenty years ago. It was ridiculous, um, and luckily, only a puppet was assaulted. Yeah. So what he said is, um, I watched this yesterday. Was he said is first he called you a girl, mm-hmm. so he insulted you I, I, for being a girl. I take pride which, in that. You know, which is sure nothing wrong with that. And second, he he said, I will punch people with glasses. So he basically physically threatened and menaced you from the stage when he's taking the award. And and the people yeah. did start booing at that point. And and so there's this eerily eerie parallel between what happened 20 years ago and today. And maybe we haven't made much progress. But uh, the reason I thought it was relevant for what we're discussing in this podcast, this is a podcast about change and how we can make the world a better place. Is I don't even you know if you even recall your public statement afterwards. But I thought it was so perfect. Really? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I got sober about, let me think, what year is it? I got sober 14 years ago. So at that award show, I was also probably kind of drunk and high. (laughs) So if I said anything insightful or I I don't remember and uh, yeah, so. So I'll I'll remind you. I mean, so, and to give people a context, I don't think we've explained. I think, I, I don't actually know the full details. My understanding is you just kind of factually described Eminem in the prior year at the Grammys saying his lyrics are sometimes homophobic, misogynistic, et cetera, which I, again, I think it's just straightforward. It's, this is not some sort of like microaggression or implicit bias. No, I was biased. This so, is just straight up. And, let's and, hurt gay people. For and example. to contextualize it a bit. And something I've been thinking about a lot lately is I was raised in this idyllic period of the seventies mm. when the hippies had all become Sesame Street producers. They had all become TV writers. They'd become college professors, academics. And so the 70s was this like culturally gentle time. Hmm. You know, and so if you grew up during the 70s, you were led to believe that like violence, racism, and hate and homophobia and bigotry had all been left behind. Yeah. You know, because like whether it's Norman Lear shows, like All in the Family, um, Sesame Street. Uh, I mean, I even remember there was a an athlete named was it Mean Joe Green or no? Mean Rose, Joe Green was definitely a guy. Rosie Greer Rosie was Greer. this like three hundred pound NFL linebacker, huh. and he released a song in the early seventies called "It's All Right to Cry." Wow, that's how gentle the seventies were. And so I thought, like, okay, hate has been left behind, bigotry's been left behind. Clearly, I was yeah absolutely mistaken. Yeah, and then all of a sudden. In the mid-90s, it kind of came back with a vengeance. Like, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, there's all this, like, what I called rape rock. Mm-hmm. You know, all these bands that were, like, egregiously misogynistic, egregiously yeah. homophobic, and all this hip-hop that was misogynistic and homophobic. And I just spoke up about it. And I was like, since when did some types of bigotry become okay? Yeah. And I remember I was doing one interview back then, and I said, okay, so take, and again, I don't, want to, I don't want to single out Eminem, but take one of these songs that are misogynistic and homophobic, just replace the words with, replace women and gay person with black person and Jewish person. Yeah. Would, would these songs still get played on the radio if sure. they were talking about harming black people and Jewish people? And the answer is no. And then I, my question was, so why is some types of bigotry promoted and monetized? And some types of bigotry is understandably not. Yeah. And it was, I thought that the weird thing back then, and I hate to say this, no one stood up for me. 
Yeah. You know, like I was sort of, especially in the music business, and I'm not looking to, to I'm not looking for a pity party, yeah. but basically everyone in the music business was making so much money, money off, of, off of misogyny and homophobia yeah. that everyone was like, shh, don't, don't talk about it. And I was yeah. like, but this is offensive. Yeah. These lyrics are misogynistic. These lyrics are homophobic. This and is dangerous. Dangerous. Because Matthew Shepard died, you know, yeah. I think just a few years before these lyrics came out. Um, and for, for those of you who don't know who Matthew Shepard is, this is a gay man who, I think it was in Wyoming. And he was... Just went to a barn and... And he know, was abused and he, and he was dragged behind a truck, truck yeah. by homophobes until he was killed. Yeah. So and you're I absolutely right. I think he was right. like tied up to a pole or something yeah. like that. It was just awful. Just, so... I mean, that's the context, is that culturally, basically, all of a sudden, hate was acceptable again. Yeah. And I was horrified by that. And I do think uh, recently there was a documentary about Woodstock 99 mm -hmm. um, that I was a part of. I was at Woodstock 99 and I was horrified by it because it was, you know, all these musicians promoting violence. And not surprisingly, there were rapes. Mm -hmm. There was abuse. There, I mean, sure. it was horrifying. I wish in the documentary... This isn't the 99 version, not the original. The 99 version. Okay. I yeah. wish they had done a better job tying that to today because when you watch this Woodstock 99 documentary, you're like, oh, this is what led to Trump. Mm -hmm. This is what's led to this culture of just utterly normalized hate and violence. Like you yeah. look, and I don't want to just say it's only Republicans, but it's certainly, they seem like whether it's, Matt Gates, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, all these people who are normalizing bigotry and violence. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I want to get to your response because I haven't even told you what your response is. Which you don't yeah. Sorry, remember. I'm but old. I ramble. No, no, it's okay. But I do want to ask a question about something you just said. You said nobody in the music industry stood up for me, and the homophobia I kind of get because this is 2002, which you know was a very different era. I mean, this is an era mm -hmm. of don't ask, don't tell. This is an era. I mean, Barack Obama was six years from becoming president of the United States and saying, I don't believe in gay marriage. Yeah, we were at war in Iraq. Yeah, we were at war in Iraq, so no one yeah. cares about this sort of thing. It, it, you know, homophobia was just not something that was widely understood. I think I hadn't even met a gay person until the year 2000. So it was like such an alien experience for anyone to think about gay people. Um, I'm actually kind of curious where your awareness of that issue came because, I mean, you're not gay, oh. you're straight. But I'm, Why I'm, do you think it is that the music industry didn't speak up for you? And you, you I guess you can answer uh, both of those questions. It was basically, but. one, there was no such thing as social media back then. Sure. And so if someone was interested in speaking up for me, they had yeah. to do it through Rolling Stone. Sure. They would have to do it through MTV. They'd, and they were all making so much money from rape rock, so from, from misogynistic hip-hop, from, so I, you know... Yeah, I get why the music industry didn't speak up with you, but I'm surprised that other artists didn't speak up for you. Because Not that I'm aware of. Not aware of, okay. Because, I mean, it's it's something also that I've noticed over time is like a lot of people, and it sounds kind of judgmental, but I've definitely found that people have very, we'll call it like situational principles, mm. you know, like contextual principles. Um, like I remember... Uh, when we, it, when was it? Was it 2000? It was around the same time, um, moveon.org and a few other organizations and I organized an anti-war concert. Hmm. Almost no one agreed to show up or perform wow. because they were afraid it would hurt their careers. Sure. Like some incredibly well-known progressive left-wing people saying, no, I can't do it. It's too hot an issue. Yeah. I was like, but we're at war for no reason. We've invaded 
granted, Saddam Hussein was a terrible, terrible person. Sure. But we've just invaded a sovereign nation on drawings. You know, mm-hmm. Colin Powell went before the UN with drawings of mobile weapons labs. I was like, that's not a justification for war. war. That's a yeah. drawing. And so we had this um, anti-war concert, and a few people did agree to come, like Tim Robbins. Um, one of my Tim f- Robbins is awesome. One of my favorite people who came was Julia Stiles. Hmm. And this was great because she addressed this. And I know I'm rambling on a bit, no, but no, like it's all good. she got on stage. Um, at the time, she was a huge movie star. And she, oh, said, she said, when Moby and these guys invited me to come speak, my managers were like, no, you can't yeah, because yeah. you can't be seen. No one can be seen as being anti-war because yeah. this is George Bush. This is, you know, and she said, and that's exactly why I'm here, mm. you know. And she sort of said something like, the moment I start prioritizing career over principles, things have gone horrifyingly wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that the, the pressure is terrifying in those situations because I know there's a lot of dialogue about the New York Times just had a, an op-ed about how we need wartime dissent, even in a situation like this where it seems very clearly that you know one side is right and one side is wrong. But multiply that by like 100x, when it comes to Afghanistan and Iraq, because mm-hmm. in 2001, 2002, 2003, the people of America, and I mean progressives too, I mean the left, the Democratic Party, were rabid and their thirst for vengeance, that, that, for some accountability. And you, you understand why, because thousands of people died on 9 11, and, and that was mm-hmm. a traumatic experience for everyone. But the, the natural human desire for vengeance amplified socially across millions of people and political debates and dialogues and elections where everyone's just kind of basically pushing the other politician aside to come out front and say, I'm the one who's going to get us justice. I'm the one who's going to get us vengeance mm-hmm. made it almost impossible for anyone to dissent against yeah. this war. And as someone who, and I'm not going to take credit for this, but as someone who dissented, it was a very uncomfortable place to be, yeah. you know, especially when you started, because as we've seen, and maybe this is very self-evident, to you, but perhaps not to other people. It's like people have an emotional reaction mm-hmm. and then they create a narrative based on the emotional reaction. Absolutely. Absolutely. As opposed to being willing to look at evidence, look at yeah. facts. And like back in, you know, going back 20 years when I was talking about how there was no justification to invade Iraq, like they hadn't been involved in 9 11, mm-hmm. that Al Qaeda hated Iraq, you yep. know, Al- Iraq and Saddam, I mean, Saddam Hussein and bin Laden were enemies, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not defending Iraq because Iraq was disgusting. Human rights abuse is horrible place, but it was a sovereign nation that had nothing to do with 9-11, but people were so angry, that thirst for blood, that mob mentality clouded all rational thinking as it continues to do like and i'd say it's almost gotten worse because back then mainstream media as corrupt as it was as flawed as it was had a moderating influence Mm -hmm. because mainstream media had to appeal to the left and the right at the same time so as a result it was moderate Mm -hmm. and now to state the obvious people get their information from media that's targeted to them and designed only to inflame them yeah and it's that's why we had January 6th. That's why, you know, we have this constant culture of just hate and abuse. And it makes me very happy that I get to, like, stay home and go hiking and pretend that the outside world doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, just to give folks an example, just from my personal life, 
this is not the Iraq war, but the Afghanistan war. I remember I was a graduate student at the time and my professor actually told us something's gone terribly wrong and we should probably cancel class and go into the lobby. And so we go in the lobby and there's a television set up and all these graduate students and a very progressive, this is mm-hmm. in Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts, all these super liberal, super progressive people gathering around the TV, watching the Twin Towers burn. And eventually, I think it just took a few minutes, you know, one of the towers comes down, we all just are in shock. And everyone's like talking and just discussing, what do we do, what do we do? And when it became apparent that this was probably an act by kind of Islamic terrorists, people from the Arab world. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people were talking about, you know, we have to do something about this. Like somehow, we didn't realize it had gotten to this point. And all I said, I just said one sentence. I was a very quiet guy back in 2001 when this happened and generally didn't engage with people, especially strangers. All I said was, I worry a little bit about how the American government will respond to this. I didn't mm-hmm. even say the American people. I just said the American government, you know, because I'd studied political science and international relations and I knew about the Pentagon Papers and the Vietnam War and... You know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all these things the American government has done over the last 40 years that are just awful and atrocious. And I swear to God, even in liberal, progressive oh, Cambridge, yeah. Massachusetts, everyone looked at me. And I think someone even said, you need to leave. And, and I was like forced out of the building just for asking a question. And I didn't even say, I'm confident the American government is going to fuck this up. Fuck America. I didn't say anything that strong. All I said was like, I, worry, I wonder, and I said something along the lines of, I wonder if the American government is going to do the right thing. And just... Yeah, there's something about these highly polarized situations. And I think it's, it's a natural reaction to conflict. When someone hurts you, you develop this emotional filter and can't, I mean, as you put yeah. it, can't look at evidence anymore. You I can't mean, look you, at facts. You can't even, consider dissenting perspectives. I mean, from a sort of neurological perspective, you know, it, when that happens, when your brain is flooded with cortisol, it's yeah. like your prefrontal cortex, which is Shut the seat down. of like executive functioning, that shuts down and the older, more primitive, more violent parts of the brain Brain. kick in. And unfortunately, the prefrontal cortex is a very gentle part of the brain and it needs encouragement. And almost everything in modern life, you know, and I don't want to sound too much like a grad student, but almost everything in modern life takes, we'll call it energy or even blood flow away from the prefrontal cortex and toward like whether it's caffeine which i love but like it's definitely caffeine does not uh, like promote rational thinking when you combine it with constant social media barrage when you combine it with you know like and i it scares me because i feel like we are as a species we're moving backwards like we're devolving you know which might sound reactionary but look at just the evidence i mean like it, it's you know, like no one gets elected talking about lofty ideals. You get elected yeah. by screaming. You get yeah. elected, you know, like you get more attention by screaming, by yelling, by being primal, by being violent. Like, yeah. And I feel like in the 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century, we had sort of been trying to move away from that, you know, mm-hmm. moving towards a more sort of like reasonable approach to politics, towards debate, towards and. Even saying that makes me sound like just so old and out of touch. Like the idea of trying to like promote reasonable debate to to say that there should be, there can be disagreement, but there doesn't have, you don't have to malign your opponent. Like that that clearly doesn't work too well in the age of social media algorithms. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the best examples and other people smarter than me have pointed this out is this guy, J.D. Vance. Mm -hmm. Do you know about him? Yeah. He wrote this pretty thoughtful book called The Hillbilly Elegy. He's a super smart guy. Harvard educated. Or something. Yeah. Yeah, Incredibly intelligent and was really trying to help 
progressives and Democrats and coastal elites understand what's going on in Appalachia, what's going on in rural white America. Mm -hmm. And it's a very thoughtful book that in many ways is progressive. It's about how a lot of disadvantaged folks are just not getting their needs met. And this is why we're seeing Yen Frang of American society. And now he's in Ohio running for office, yeah, running and, for Senate, and, exactly, and he's, and he's saying, become Trump. No, he's become Trump. You know, yeah. he's, he's no longer thoughtful. He doesn't have these nuanced arguments where he's trying to bring people together. He's just yelling, you know, stop. I, I, I should correct myself. I'm actually not sure if he's denying the legitimacy of the election, but it's along those lines. I don't, that might not be a specific fraudulent claim he's making, but he's certainly making similar bombastic claims just to aggravate, you know, the people in his base, get them riled up to fight the other side, which... Yeah is a terrible sign for the future of American democracy. I mean, yeah. Um, and in the back of it, not, I mean, I, I don't want to just be too negative, but you're, you're, I 100% agree with what you're saying. And I'll, I'm on all my text threads with all my friends, like everyone's saying the same thing. Um, Van Jones was the first person who ever sort of really alerted me to the recurrence of this problem. This was a, a while ago. And I was sort of in my naive way saying like, oh, things are getting better. Like, you know, Hillary's going to win the election. People yeah. are going to wake up. We're going to have like bipartisanship. And he was like, oh, How'd no. How'd that go, Moby? <laughs> he was like, oh, no. And he was so right. And I was so wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time. Uh, Who's Van Jones, by the way? I, I know oh, Van name, Jones. He's but... a, he was in the Obama White House, and then he was a CNN commentator. Okay. I don't know. Actually, I, know. I haven't no, talked to him since. He's got glasses, black guy, right? Yeah, lives okay. in Silver yeah, Lake. I, I know him now. Um, yeah. Incredibly erudite, and like I said, he was right, I was wrong. Yeah. Uh, but the, 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 what I was thinking of is that there's always this sort of, to make a really obscure reference, like a sword of Damocles hanging over us, hmm. which is climate change. Yeah. You know, like... All this other stuff, like the things that we're arguing about, the things that people are holding on to so passionately, I just keep thinking, I have this recurring little thought in my head that the last time the Earth had this high a concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, sea levels were 240 feet higher. Wow, yeah. Um, 240 feet. 200, so wow. basically mammals are on borrowed time. Hmm. You know, like it's the feedback loops, and I, I, it's so depressing. But the feedback feedback loops that are that are kicking in on right now that are going to get so much worse. The Earth is going to not be the, the Earth will not be capable of supporting human life pretty soon, yeah. or at least not more than a couple of million humans. You know, mm -hmm. like it's gonna it's gonna get pretty bad, yeah. and. That also dovetails into animal rights activism, yeah, you know, because a, a big part of my current focus as an animal rights activist is looking at, well, two things, climate change and antibiotic resistance. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. antibiotic resistance, I mean, even as you know, it's like the NIH and the CDC, like they admit that 90% of antibiotic use is for farm animals, mm -hmm. you know, and it's leading to, it's the next apocalypse yeah. is like, and it's going to be killing kids. Yeah. It's going to be, you know, it's going to get... It already is. Yeah, I mean, it it's, already is. Whether it's, I mean, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Like those terrible bacterial infections. MRSA. Yeah, MRSA and um, MRSA. tens of thousands of people. We've done a lot of investigations, and we did and, a report and in the E. coli and yeah, salmonella. You know, like things that were treatable five years ago are now killing people. Yeah, and the bugs are mutating at such a rate that it's 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 apocalyptic. Yeah.
Um, and for those of you who don't know what MRSA is, this is this is not a pleasant way to die at all. It's it, it's a slow, gruesome process. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes you'll do like die faster because you go into septic shock, basically because the infection gets in your bloodstream and just shuts everything down. But otherwise, it's basically flesh-eating bacteria that we cannot stop. Yeah, and we are creating it. We know we're creating it. There's overwhelming scientific evidence we're creating, it, and it's already killing. I think the number is 50,000 Americans. And as you said, it's primarily children, the elderly, and the immune compromised. Mm -hmm. So the most vulnerable people in our community who we always say we should protect and love and care for are the ones dying because of this industry's thirst for cheap meat. And it's disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting what Smithfield does. Um, and to that end, that's one. I was on a call the other day with some uh, philanthropists and we were talking about how best to address the issue of animal agriculture, of meat and dairy production. And my obsession, I don't know why we in the animal rights community haven't looked at this more, is just simply attacking subsidies. Yeah. Because the, the reason, and, and I'm stating the obvious for you, for almost everyone listening, the reason meat and dairy is cheap is subsidies. Like yeah. we're subsidizing an industry that causes antibiotic resistance, yep. it causes pandemics, it causes climate change, it causes cancer, diabetes, heart disease, it destroys community, it destroys workers, it kills billions of animals a year, and we subsidize it. Mm -hmm. It's, I almost feel like it could be an opportunity for common cause with people on the right, because sure. people on the right tend to hate government subsidies. Say to them like, hey, look, we agree, stop subsidizing industries that are destroying us. Yeah. You know, it's bad enough that these industries exist. Why take tax dollars and subsidize industries that are literally killing us? Yeah. It's so that's one of I'm trying to figure out strategically how to advance that argument. Yeah, I mean, obviously people on the right are not big fans of Bill Gates because of the vaccine stuff he's done and because he's you known as sort of a leftist in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of legitimate critiques of Bill Gates on the left, obviously, too, but the the farm bill, this five year bill that comes to the tune of usually between 100 and 200 billion dollars, which is a massive amount of money. I mean, nothing gets that much money other than the military industrial complex, right? Bill Gates is actually one of the biggest beneficiaries of the farm bill. Hmm. And, and these are just straight up corporate but, handouts. But also even, sorry to interrupt, but even the nomenclature, like for example, when you when legislators talk about a farm bill, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, who that doesn't like great. a yeah. farm bill? Like farmers, <laughs> like, like those nice people standing out in the field, the stewards of the earth. Yeah. Farm bill is subsidies to corporations. Yeah. That's all it is. Like there's yeah. no farm involved. It's a it's a subsidy bill to giant corporations who are destroying communities and animals and lives. Like, yeah. And even the American Enterprise Institute, which yeah. is a right wing think tank, is very much against the farm bill. And I think the last time around, the farm bill is coming up again, I think in 2023, I believe it is. I think it was last passed in 2018 because it's a five year cycle. I think the American Enterprise Institute did this big report called Handouts for Billionaires because there are a huge number of billionaires who own massive amounts of land and get subsidies. And, and these subsidies, it's for, for meat, the meat industry in particular, it's like a double subsidy because there are a lot of subsidies directly for the factory farmers. So during the pandemic, when they're exterminating all these animals, for example, mm -hmm. there is this assistance for all the factory farmers who exterminate their animals because the slaughterhouses were shutting down. They did horrible things like ventilation shutdown, pumping hot steam into factory farms so all the animals were just roasted alive. And the factory farmers would go to Congress and say, hey, we had to kill our animals because you forced the slaughterhouses to shut down. Now pay us for it. You know, this and is normally just a risk of business. And all the other businesses that shut down because they couldn't make it, you know, if you own a restaurant, for example, if like 
the government says, oh, sorry, you can't open for a couple of weeks. They don't just pay you for all this, the sales you would have had if not for the government action. But they did that for factory farms. And, yeah, and I don't on. know if people fully understand how insidious it is because there's no part of animal ag that isn't subsidized. Yep. The water is subsidized. The feed. The feed is subsidized. The, feed, the roads absolutely. are subsidized. Yeah. The, every, like anything that goes in to the business of animal ag is subsidized by yeah. our tax dollars. And I just feel like that's, if people knew that, they would be outraged. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the senators, you know, I mean, unfortunately, when Biden made Tom Vilsack a part of his administration. I was like, come <laughs> on. Like this guy is the worst of the worst. Yeah. You know, um, he was a Senator from Iowa. Yep. And, uh, and you know, he was making a million dollars a year as president of the, I think it's the, the American dairy council, export mm -hmm. council, million dollars a year. And I don't think he was actually doing anything. So it was basically, I mean, just a legal bribe. Yeah. yeah he, so he's, it's, he's an influential guy. We're going to let you sit there earn a million dollars a year for a couple of years. And then you get appointed to become the secretary of agriculture, controlling our entire food system. So what do you think he's going to do to the dairy industry? It's, yeah, it's bad. It, it's, and I get going back to my earlier comment about climate change. There is this unfortunate aspect of it where, and I'm almost hesitant to say this, but when, cause it's so incredibly negative. Mm. Um, but I have a feeling some people might agree with this. It's like, you know, maybe a world without people wouldn't be the worst thing. Mm. You know, looked at the evidence. I mean, like, what human, human beings, we do some nice things. Yeah. You know, we do some interesting things with science. We make some nice songs every now and then. But, like, we also invented torture. Mm. We've also invented mass incarceration. We've also killed, you know, I mean, like, on the balance of it, like humanity's terrible. Like we are, and it's really, it's not something I talk about in public very often. It's not even something I talk about with my friends, but like with, if you take a step back and look at humanity objectively, like we are arguably the worst species that has ever existed. Like we're the only species that goes to war. Mm -hmm. Like we, what our, our claim to fame, we invented war and torture. Animals mm -hmm. don't go to war or if they do, it's quick and, and functional, you mm -hmm. know, like, and it's for a rational reason. Um, except for cats, cats are genocidal <laughs> monsters. <laughs> but like, it is the fact that, you know, when you think of the, the thousands of ways that humans have figured out how to torture each other and kill each other and destroy each other, like, why are we still here? Like, yeah. shouldn't the owner of the earth come and say, look, you guys are bad for business. Like, you need to go. Yeah. You know, the earth was doing fine for three and a half billion years without humans. Well, this brings us back to the point I was going to make at the beginning of this podcast, which is your reaction to Eminem physically uh, <laughs> threatening you and punching mm -hmm. a dog who was effectively your Puppet. surrogate. I think he really wanted to punch the puppet dog or he really wanted to punch you yeah he really yeah he, but the puppet dog was just who was available and you know maybe a little more reasonable and less likely to compromise his financial interest to punch the puppet instead of you and and i also want to bring it back to a point you made about the fact that human beings do have the capacity to be reasonable and even more than being reasonable um so i was a behavioral economist a long time ago and which is kind of the intersection of psychology and economics and so you I read it. I had, you know, you have to read a lot mm -hmm. of neuroscience. And what, the other thing about the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobes is they're not just the seat of rationality, they're the seat of empathy. 
the seat of what's called theory of mind, your ability mm -hmm. to kind of imagine what someone else is feeling, which is pretty crucial for the entire planet, for us to cooperate, for us to solve problems like climate change. And um, I'm actually kind of surprised you're at a drug addicted and wild phase of your life because your response after Eminem had punched this puppet, you know, had insulted you on national television and threatened to punch you in the face despite your glasses, <laughs> was one of the things you said right after this, and, and I, you might not remember this, but I looked at the press releases and the press statements, mm -hmm. I think you wrote this on your blog, is you said Eminem is a great rapper. And that, that small comment might not seem like much, but usually when you're in a fight, it's impossible to see anything good about the other side or imagine what that other person is going through or their attributes they have that might be exceptional. And you did follow up by saying, and it's because he's a great rapper that I want him not to be homophobic because so many people listen to his music because he's a brilliant artist and I'm concerned that it's gonna have a bad effect on gay people all over the country and all over the world. But the fact that you were able to acknowledge something tremendous about someone who is in a very intense fight with you, I think is so important, so powerful and such an important lesson for all of us in trying to resolve dis disputes and disagreements that we have today. Because if we're clouded by this haze of tribal warfare, we're not gonna be able to resolve our disagreements, much less move forward. And, and we need kind of everybody together. For climate change, it's not enough for 50% or 20% of, of the people of this world mm -hmm. or the nations of this world to get on board. We have to see that all of us are in this together. And so whatever mistakes China's made, India's made, the United States has made, We've also done tremendous things. And if we can get that collective blood flow away from our amygdala and our orbital mm -hmm. frontal cortex, the parts of our brain that are fight or flight towards the prefrontal cortex where we can think rationally, what's best for all of us? And what is this person going through? I mean, what shared interest do we have? Yeah. Then I think we can solve this problem. And it's a less pessimistic vision of our future. Well, so why am I wrong? Um, everything you said is, is completely right. Okay. Um, that, yeah, we can't practically rationally solve these problems without being practical and rational yeah um and you're right to to do that we need to sort of like figure out how do you shunt energy away from these older more primal atavistic violent parts of our brain to the you know the frontal lobe the prefrontal cortex mm -hmm. the seat of empathy and reason unfortunately there's just the way in which you tend to do that is by and I, I, i'm really trying to like dial down the grad student stuff but like the the unfortunately named parasympathetic nervous system mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that is the calming nervous system that's what enables us to be calm and rational there aren't too many things in most people's lives like do you want to do you want to trigger a cortisol response give someone caffeine put them on social media stick them in traffic subject them to tons of screaming information um, put them in a job they don't like and feed them processed foods mm -hmm that's how you keep people from being rational and calm. Mm -hmm. um, how do you get people to that place of being rational and calm? It's a, it's quite, it's a, a huge challenge. So that's what unfortunately does make me pessimistic because I just don't see much that's pushing us collectively neurologically to a place where we can affect rational change. I think at the individual level, we see a lot of, problematic evidence like that you know and, and obviously you and i would say that 
or continued consumption of animals is an example of that too. The fact that unfortunately more and more people are eating more and more meat, even in places like China and India, where historically, like in China, meat really hasn't been a staple food. There is no land mm-hmm. to to grow feed and grow crops just to feed to the animals. In India, Hinduism and Buddhism were invented in India, and these ancient traditions of nonviolence instructed everybody that we don't harm any animals, including you know the animals that other societies might eat. And there's a lot of individual indicators in terms of just human behavior that would lead us to be pessimistic. I'm optimistic because of policy and culture and and trends like the fact that even McDonald's is saying they support a McPlan or even Mitt Romney, a Republican, a libertarian, someone who is a you know private equity titan is saying mm-hmm. we should be giving every family in America $2,000 a month. I think that's the amount he said just because they're family because every kid deserves to have some money and he's trying to expand what's called... I think it's not called the earned income tax credit anymore, but it's something like that, where essentially every family, just by virtue of being a family, we believe that every kid deserves to have some base level of income. Even Republicans, libertarians are supporting these things. So I think I was at, actually just had a conversation with this economist who's a columnist at Bloomberg, really smart guy named Noah Smith, who's pretty big on Twitter. And he was saying there are a lot, he's very optimistic too, even about the Ukraine war, because he said, we're actually in a time period very similar to the 1930s, because you had this calamitous period in the 1920s where you have like Black Friday, markets collapse and we have the Great Depression and you know people starving and, and actually very similar to today, shanty towns developing all across America because people couldn't afford their homes anymore and they lost all their equity in, in the stock market or the mm-hmm. jobs that used to exist had completely disappeared. But the period after the 1930s were a period of what Noah called shaking out. You know, we kind of, we were forced to shake out all the bad ideas and come up with better ones. And I'm not saying things were perfect. Roosevelt was far from a perfect president, but we did pass a number of really important policies and start a movement towards things like the Civil Rights Act, things like mm-hmm. Medicare and Medicaid and the Clean Air Act and the Clean the Water EPA, Act. Yeah. Start, the EPA, all these things mm-hmm. started happening in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, all the way into the 1960s. So, you know, my view it is, if you look at just where we are today, it looks really bad. But if you look at the signs, including the fact that even Republicans are saying every child deserves to have a basic income. Um, even large corporations are acknowledging that social justice matters. And again, a lot of that is performative. I'm not saying, you know, Microsoft and McDonald's with their McPlant or their, you know, LGBT policy are going to lead us towards a revolution and transforming the world for the better. But the fact that these incredibly powerful institutions are feeling power, pressure to change, like McDonald's has a McPlant now, Mm -hmm. you know, Republicans are saying welfare is good. Like, doesn't that make you feel good? No. Um, Well, two things. One, on the economic side, what's interesting is, and it's a very dicey, tricky thing to talk about. I don't know anyone who's done a study as regards the impact of, and and I almost feel like I shouldn't even bring this up. I just like do it. It's a podcast. The the impact (laughs) of the, the impact of economics on our culture, on health. I mean, there's broad indicators, but um, I mean, like, for example, a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, like, they're reason, they're they're very well-fed people. Like, you know, like, there's no shortage of calories. It's not like they're, like, angry because they can't feed their kids. They're just angry. And, you know, like, if we look at, like, the last, the last 50 years in the United States has been the biggest creation of wealth in human history and the end result is people are furious and depressed and anxious and punching each other on the street and like so like 
is economics is is the traditional Keynesian et cetera approach to economics does it generate the outcomes that we're looking for? I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just saying it's sort of like people take it on blind faith that there's like a direct linear result to welfare subsidies. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to take a position. I don't, I don't yeah. say yay or nay. I'm saying the left and the progressives might actually want to just sort of like look at detailed studies yeah. and look at the data instead of just take it as an a priori fact that you know an expanded welfare state creates benefits because i don't know if the evidence categorically across the board supports that and again i'm not trying to get in trouble because sure. i know that i'm, I'm touching <laughs> on progressive orthodoxy yeah. i'm just saying are you a neoliberal movie? i'm a nothing don't need to attack okay but then <laughs> my follow-up to that is my worldview is so reductionist and simple i care about my like i'm a single or maybe a quasi two issue person animals and the environment mm -hmm. that's it so like i'm all in favor of humans getting their shit together if it helps animals and the environment if it doesn't help animals and the environment honestly i don't really care that much mm. like i've had to sort of almost become a sociopath for animals wow. because the plight of animals is so overwhelming like so like what we're talking about like humans evolving to a place of reason and compassion great mm. If it helps animals, if it doesn't help help animals, like if it's just people listening to NPR while they're eating hamburgers and free quote unquote free range chickens, fuck them. Like yeah. if it doesn't help animals, I hate to say it, I don't care. Yeah. And if it doesn't save the environment, I don't care. Like if it's human culture benefiting humans, meh, not top of my priority list. Yeah. You know, when I look at the trillions of animals being killed every year, and pristine natural environments being decimated by humans i'm like i'm on i'm on team animal and environment and i'm kind of anti-human in that way so i had just wanted to be clear that that's my overarching perspective on things is what benefits animals would that change if there was a change in our culture towards something like anti-speciesism and that's a five dollar word for just the idea that yeah you know, because human beings are animals. And I think the problem that it's, both of us see is, is not that human beings are, are cared for. Obviously, both of us want human beings to be cared for. It's that we're caring for one species to the detriment of all the other 99.9999% of species. And you could even argue, this is something that, that if I think about it too much will make me insane, is like... <laughs> it's so, true of a lot of things, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so humans as you're, you're right like humanity is designed to look after humanity mm -hmm. and it's doing a terrible job it is. Yeah. you know it's like rates of anxiety suicide depression abuse violence like humans are not doing well yeah. there are a lot of us and we're physically comfortable for the most part i mean obviously to be very clear billions of people are not but compared to, you know, you know, our level of, you know, the calorie intake, battling disease, like all the metrics indicate that like things are on a material level getting better, but like so are rates of depression, anxiety, yep. et cetera. And the horrible sickness there is that like I'll walk around Los Angeles and I'll see these miserable humans. Like when I say miserable, I mean like I'm not judging them. They're miserable. Like they're depressed and obese and angry eating McDonald's. And I'm like, so you've killed an innocent being that is capable of profound joy to sustain the life of someone who is miserable and vicious. Yeah. Like that's just like 
an added level of spiritual perversion yeah. to the idea of using animals for food. So here's here's a more charitable view on human beings, and because I and I, I appreciate your because this is my sorry to interrupt, but this is my biggest personally my biggest spiritual challenge is yeah. compassion for humans like yeah. i have compassion for mosquitoes i have compassion for beetles i've show me i have compassion for paramecium sure. humans when i go hiking or when i walk around and i see humans i'm like yeah kind of the world would be better without these people yeah. so like developing compassion for humans so i'm very curious to hear what you're going to say because i would love to figure out a way to have more compassion for the people who are killing animals and destroying this planet i'm going to make an argument that i think richard dawkins has made at least implicitly which is that what you said that we're miserable sad depressed and often suicidal animals is destructive too yeah and destructive but it's partly because we're victims of our own gene success that dawkins has made the point that yeah Selection happens at the level of gene and not the level of organism. And even at the level of gene and at the level of organism, the way natural selection and evolution work is not, is not to maximize flourishing and happiness in terms of subjective consciousness. Consciousness is some, not something that natural selection operates on. It only operates on genes. So if, if evolution dictates that creating billions and billions of individual human beings is only going to be possible if they're all miserable... <laughs> And self-destructive, that's what evolution will do. Yeah. And, and what Dawkins has said, and, and this is interesting because this is someone who very much believes, just from a scientific perspective, descriptively, he's not saying this normatively, he believes that's the way the world works, that we have these genes, this is just scientifically what happens. He believes that also, from a normative perspective, in terms of what we should do, is we have to move away from genetic selection to new forms of evolution that mm -hmm. don't just focus on maximizing the number of biological creatures with four arms, a brain, and two ears, and a nose that have all these DNA cells with you know, DNA genes that are replicating as much as we possibly can, but focus on maximizing something more important, like flourishing, like happiness, yeah. like justice. And, Absolutely. and, and once our systems mm -hmm. evolve to that point, and we are guided not by the natural impulses we have to eat that burger, even though we know, you know it might give me some short-term pleasure and secure my survival in the short term, but given that I'm now in a species that has a lifespan of 70, not a lifespan of 40, and given that I do care about my life after my child-rearing years. I do care about the other people in this world who are 70 and 80, or frankly, who are just not able to reproduce, you know, despite mm -hmm. the fact that it's not presenting any genetic advantage for me, my species, um, and my genes. If we can get our systems into a place that we're facilitating and encouraging that sort of pro-social long-term behavior, then yeah. the species can save itself and start saving the other creatures of this earth. The way I heard it described is like Star Trek versus Mad Max. There we go. Yeah. Star Trek versus <laughs> Mad Max. Exactly. That's a perfect metaphor. Um, like Star Trek, for those of you who don't know, Star Trek, they have this world where people talk about how, can you believe there was a time where people used to eat animals? <laughs> yeah. And they, there's no money. Yeah. It's all rational and uh -huh. enlightened and pursuing science knowledge. Yeah. So I have and to- they don't hurt the, the species they come into contact with. Oh, I had to take my little pee break um, <laughs> because- so I got sober 14 years ago and Congratulations. post, thank you, post sobriety, I have developed a weird, no, it's okay, it's not weird because it's shared by almost every human being on the planet, but this love of caffeine. Um, so this morning I had about six or seven cups of black tea <laughs> and that's why I had to interrupt you were talking about Richard Dawkins yeah. and the evolution of humanity. Sure. And the whole time I was like, I completely agree with what Wayne is saying, but if I don't pee soon, I will possibly <laughs> die. So. Yeah. 
So if you agree yeah. with what I was saying, why aren't you more optimistic? Because, I mean, the way Dawkins put it in his book, The Selfish Gene, is we have to move, and meme is not what we think of it today, but he said mm -hmm. we have to move from selection on genes to selection on memes. And it went, what he meant by memes in 1978 when he wrote this book was not cat photos or, you know, cat gifts on Twitter. He meant <laughs> to, be, selection to be fair, on, there's nothing wrong with a good which, cat meme. Yeah, nothing wrong with cat memes, of course. Yeah. What he meant by memes and memetics was just selecting on ideas that work. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to be organized according to ideas and principles that actually allow the conscious beings of this earth to flourish. And Dawkins, for the record, includes animals in that. He's, yeah. he's, he has explicitly compared animal agriculture to human slavery. And what he also still eats animals, which is very weird and bizarre. There are a lot of there are, <laughs> yeah. I know so many people like that. He's an like, atrocity, but he still eats. Yeah. So sorry, Richard Dawkins, we're going to call you out on this podcast, but it, it is, is kind of weird, mind-boggling to me. Like the number of people who are animal lovers, who are yeah. rational, who know. I mean, like I don't want to name names, but like so many people, incredibly well-known environmentalists, sure. climate activists. Like I was even reading about that sunrise movement uh -huh. and how most of them eat meat. Really? What the fuck is wrong with you people? Like I don't think you it's are true of the Bay Area. For the record, the Bay Area chapter it, is very because we've worked with them in the Bay Area. Yeah, and, and I'm not trying stuff. to malign the whole organization, <laughs> okay. but I was reading the New Yorker had an article yeah. about them and like the They're leaders were talking about how they all eat meat, and I was like, that's strange. It's kind of like being an anti-cancer activist and smoking cigarettes. Like, what are you? But it's yeah. So, but be that. So we all know that the majority of people are hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite as well, that's although fine. I'm not a. When it comes to animals, I'm absolutely not a hypocrite because yeah. that's my guiding principle is I would rather die than harm an animal. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Um, and I mean that literally. Yeah. You know, like if someone held a gun to my head and said, if you don't kill that rabbit, I will kill you. It's like, kill me. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to hurt another animal mm. no matter what. Um, if, my, if I was starving, it doesn't matter. I'd rather die than impose my will on another sentient being. Mm. That simple. Um, but regarding Richard Dawkins and the cause for optimism, you could say, absolutely, we are, there, there are so many things indicating that humanity is moving towards this sort of like more rational, potentially even enlightened future. Um, but the sort of Damocles of climate change sure. hanging over our head, like if, so maybe we'll figure it out. Yeah. But right now it looks as if climate change is, I mean... It's certainly going to cause um, the biggest realignment or rearrangement in human history. I mean, this, the Anthropocene era is going to have consequences that are going to last for millions of years. Yeah. And that's regardless of whether we do everything right. You know, even if we starting today, you know, March 29th, 2022, did everything absolutely right in terms of climate, didn't add a single molecule of CO2. There are already, from what I understand, hundreds of thousands of species, for example, that will be committed to extinction. They'll yeah. disappear from the face of the planet Earth forever. Many of them already have, you know? Like, I think even just like one subspecies of frog, I did research on this 20 years ago, and I updated, did a little updated look on it. And actually, maybe we'll pause for just one moment. I mean, we, we can also just contextualize it and say, like, we're sitting outside in Los Angeles. Yeah. Even though we're surrounded by trees, it's still the second biggest city in the United States. And as a result, there are idiots in helicopters flying. Yeah, actually, maybe we'll edit that out. That'll be an interesting addition to the podcast. But I was saying, there's just one subspecies of hog, these beautiful tropical frogs called harlequin frogs. I think 90% of them, the species, which is potentially, I don't even know how many millions of individual beings have just been disappearing from the face of the mm -hmm. planet Earth. And we think climate change is... is well, the amphibians the are cause. definitely... Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the biomarker species, yep. they tell us they're the canary in Earth's coal mine. 
right? They, when they die, it's a sign that we're all going to die. It's and an they are all it's dying. also an apt idiom. Yeah. Canary in the coal mine. It's like... It is an apt idiom. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, so that that what we're describing really comes down to like optimism versus pessimism. The race between you know is it is it the race to enlightenment or the race to destruction? Yeah. Who it's kind of who wins? You mm -hmm. know, like not to make it all tribal and competitive, but like you could so easily make a case that like things are horrible and getting worse. You can also make a case that things are okay and getting better. Um, and I'm. But the good thing is that unless humans stop using animals for food, there will be no future to humanity. Yeah. You know, so the good thing is like the animals long term will benefit. Like the animals will either be part of a on, on a planet where they're no longer harmed or used by and for humans, or humanity goes away. Yeah. Like my goal is to just sort of like try and get one of those things to happen sooner than later because every day, as we know, like the, you know, the, the hundreds of millions of animals who are killed by and for humans every day, like every, every one of those deaths is a preventable tragedy. Yeah. And it feels like the world is trying to teach us this right now with COVID-19, antibiotic resistance, the wildfires in California. And I think there's... Wild, wildfires, sadly, now everywhere wildfires yeah, in russia wildfires yeah. in the ukraine wildfires mm -hmm. in australia wildfires in argentina while i mean like the world is on fire it's and it's trying to tell us something about our current practices that something's got to change or it's going to break um so have you ever seen that chart this is a chart that's been showed by a lot of media outlets when they're talking about the history of social change and social justice causes of like women's rights and gay rights Got another that's plane pretty loud. Yeah, I, that, I think that's actually an old-timey airplane, not even a helicopter. <laughs> right. I just envision in like Snoopy as the fighting the Red Bear and. Yeah. Um, so the chart I'm trying to describe, which has been shared on social media a lot, it's been shared in media. Whenever there's a media article, I think maybe it was Nick Kristoff around the time that you know after the the George Floyd murder, there are all these statues coming down, and everyone was condemning, you know our mm -hmm. ancestors for the things you were doing. He was saying, well, let's look at, you know, history and see what history has done and how quickly changes. I mean, let's ask what, you know, changes we need to make. And actually one of the things he said, he said, let's look in the future and ask what future generations will judge us on, what statues will come down 40 years from now. And one of them is going to be the statues of the people who supported the exploitation of animals. But I don't remember if it was this article, the op-ed he wrote, but he's the sort of person who has shared this chart, which just shows you kind of, on the, the x-axis is just how many states across the nation have supported some issue, whether it's desegregation of schools, you know, abolishing slavery, the mm -hmm. Fugitive Slave Act, um, women's suffrage. And and the the y-axis is just, or I should say the x-axis is the year, you know, just over time. Like, mm -hmm. And the y-axis is how many states support this particular issue and have come to a state of enlightenment on with respect to women's rights, immigration, and race, whatever it is. And one of the most astonishing things about this chart is name the issue, gay rights, women's rights, environmentalism. The way the chart works isn't, you know, slow, steady progress over time. It is like seemingly nothing happening. And if I were an activist over that time period, I'd just be like, damn, like in the year 1910, things suck. Mm -hmm. And then literally eight years later, you know, 20 years after Susan B. Anthony got arrested for voting for the first time. Susan B. Anthony is a mm -hmm. very famous women's rights activist who voted even though it was illegal to do so. She got arrested and thrown in jail for it. I believe it. she was also the first woman on a coin. Really? Huh? She was on the 
there, there was a Susan B. Anthony silver dollar for oh, a minute. Cool. I didn't know that. That's yeah. awesome. Um, but if you're Susan B. Anthony in 1890 or someone following Susan B. Anthony in 1890, you think, wow, this sucks. It's been 20 years. We can't even get one state, like one state or one city. And then it's like right around the end of the 1910s, there's a cliff. <laughs> Every single state in the nation starts moving in the direction of women's rights. And then we get, um, I think it's is it the 18th Amendment. I think it's the 18th Amendment. The 18th Amendment passes and gives every woman the right to well, vote. And, the, and, and so th the reason I, despite the fact that you say like, okay, there's all these bad things happening and it seems like change isn't happening fast enough. People are doing the same things like these policy. And, and what you also see, at least from my reading of history is in all these time periods, everyone for a long period of time, isn't really even talking about an issue. Like it's, it's very rare for even someone to discuss something like women's suffrage in 1850, for example, it's just not even part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. In fact, when, some of the rare abolitionists in the 1850s started talking about women's suffrage and women's rights. They were kind of laughed out of the movement. You know, like William Lloyd Garrison was one of the few who talked about women's rights. And I was like, women's rights? We're not talking about that. We're talking about human enslavement. Forget about women's and women and the right to vote. But once these conversations start, and they start happening in the United States, for example, and around the world with a real fervor at the end of the 19th century, the progress happens. It doesn't happen, you know, right when the conversation starts, but the conversation happens for like 20, 30 years and then 1920, 1915 or so, the entire nation changes. Not just this nation, but nations all over the world start changing. Yeah, I mean, the classic so, example more recently is gay marriage. Absolutely. Gay marriage is an example where even you know, Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 is saying, I'm opposed to gay marriage. And now he says, I was wrong. And yeah. it's now a constitutional right that was enshrined by the Supreme Court of the United States. So to me, the fact that we're having all these conversations, the fact that you know, I know you've supported us on this, AB 2764, like a bill that I think would have been unheard of even five years ago. This is a bill that bans new construction on factory farms and slaughterhouses. These things are happening. They're now part of the conversation. They're becoming real political possibilities. And once we have yeah. some breakthroughs, once that first state comes forward and says, yes, we do have to take our future more seriously. Yes, we ha do have to take our public health more seriously. I think we're going to see a cliff. I, there is so much historical precedent for that. Because you're absolutely right. Like there's, you could say there's like gradual cultural underpinnings that lead to change. Um, but it's the legislation. Like once something is legislated, like even Civil Rights Act, like yeah. did that end racism? Absolutely yeah. not. But did it basically enshrine civil rights as a law? Yes. You know, Um Obviously, the end of slavery did not end slavery, didn't end racism, but like it was a huge, as you're talking about that, 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 that brick wall change, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, it's happened so many times over and over and over again. And it's so encouraging, yeah, you know, it's it um, actually when Cory Booker was first elected to the Senate, we were having dinner and he because, you know, he's a vegan and his, mm -hmm. he called me after he was elected and his first question if you want to love Cory Booker more, his first question to me after being elected to the Senate was, what can we do to help animals? Wow. Um, really? And we were talking, and he was sort of paraphrasing the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. Yeah. Um, and it's, you could, and it's, it's absolutely true as it applies to, you know, I mean, think of like a couple thousand years ago, only white royalty could own property. Mm -hmm. And then it was all white men then it was all men, then all, well, and it's been this slow extension and expansion of rights. Yeah. And you're 100% right. Everything indicates that animals are next. Mm -hmm. 
everything rationally, everything empirically, all the data indicates that animals are next in terms of being granted basic rights. The New Yorker even just had an article on this, you know, the guy who started the Animal yeah. Rights Project. Um, yeah, Steve Weiss. Amazing but, dude. Good yeah, friend of mine. I had dinner with him back when yeah. I owned Little Pine. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. And, but then the question is like, wh why haven't we figured it out? If You know, like one of the things that makes me so hopeful was actually abolition. Hmm. You know, because the United States was far more culturally and economically dependent on slavery than it is on animal products. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and the we economics were, is so clear on this. And we were yeah. able to do away with slavery. Yeah. That means we can do this. Like we can end the use of animals by and for humans. Yeah. You know, it and Every, and it's one of the, it almost reminds me a little bit of like the end of the Soviet Union because mm -hmm. I grew up with the Soviet Union. And if you had asked me, asked anyone like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, like will the Soviet Union ever end? You'd be like, oh, absolutely not. Like that's mm -hmm. a country. That's a, you know, that's, there are all these p nations that are part of the Soviet Union. It'll never end. And all of a sudden one day it's done. Yeah. You know, one day. Like literally one day. One day same sex <laughs> couples can get yeah. married. One day women can vote. Yeah. One, I mean, it's like, so the change can happen. Uh, it's just, I guess it's that exasperation. It's like, why haven't, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, sure. you and yeah. anyone listening, most likely they're already vegan animal rights activists, yeah. but why haven't humans figured out that an industry that causes rainforest destruction, causes climate change, causes pandemics, causes cancer, diabetes, heart disease, causes antibiotic resistance, causes climate change, destroys communities, workers, causes water pollution and kills over a trillion animals a year. Like, why does this industry still exist? Because they're and, being lied to. And because we subsidize yeah. it. Because we subsidize it because and, people are being lied to. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much dishonesty and outright fraud in the it, industry about the conditions the animals are being raised in, about the real risks of antibiotic resistance and pandemics. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of shocked that anybody is, is a vegan because of the amount of misinformation that's put out there about what you need to eat. I mean, both of us are men who grew up in the night. Well, you grew up in the 1970s. I grew up in the 1980s and especially back in then. But even to this day, I mean, I, I've talked to kids recently who are, who are telling me, you know, like I'm being told by my gym teacher, by my, oh, my uh, trainer, yeah. my coach, that that if I don't eat animals, I will get sick and die. I have a good friend who actually actually recently, unfortunately, reverted from veganism, partly because he went to his doctor who told him if he didn't start eating fish, his so, memory would continue to decline. Um, so I, regarding doctors, everyone should know this because a lot of people don't know this. As you know, and as probably a lot of people listening would know, but some people don't know this, nutrition is not a part of any medical curriculum. Yeah. Um, I once was out to dinner with a, a, a friend of mine and his partner who was a doctor and his partner was saying like, oh, you know, if you're a vegan, you can't get all the nutrients you need. And I was like, really? Because I think you can. <laughs> And this person was so offended. They're like, I'm a doctor. Like, yeah. And then I asked them, I was like, well, so how much time have you spent studying nutrition? And instantly they were so contrite. And they're like, well, I've never studied nutrition. <laughs> but they were so in love with their opinion. So when a doctor says that you should eat meat, if a doctor has an opinion about nutrition, unless they've gone back to school to study nutrition, <laughs> yeah, there's no way. They like, <laughs> they don't know. Like, I love doctors. If I have a broken ankle, yeah. I want a doctor to fix my ankle, you sure. know? Like if I need a new pair of glasses, I want an ophthalmologist to, to give me a new prescription, new pair of glasses. Don't 
take plumbing advice from a carpenter. Yeah. Don't take nutritional advice from a doctor. It's just, they, they don't know. Yeah. You know, it's not just you saying this. I was actually talking to a doctor at UCSF, an epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. Do you know Mike Martin by chance? Mm -hmm. He started this group, Physicians Against Red Meat. Really great guy. I'm going to have him on the podcast soon because um, he's just done incredible amount of research on antibiotic resistance. And one of the things he points out is that doctors, especially in the United States, don't actually do preventive medicine. That's not something oh, no. that's a big part of the American medical care system. It's not just about diet, just in general. Preventive medicine is not something we're really trained in. We're trained yeah. to identify lesions, you know, some sort of lesion, a disease, an injury that's an acute problem you're facing and that's new. And even, sorry to interrupt, but I would say yeah. even, even more insidious, and again, I'm stating the obvious, and doc, a lot of doctors are great, well-intentioned, but they're also designed to monetize illness yes yeah, you know like it's like yep the way they, they actually do better when we don't do preventive well the industry and, does better yeah when we don't do preventive medicine. um but that like for example i follow you know bernie and elizabeth warren and all these people on twitter and when they post about healthcare, i'm like here's a crazy idea let's stop subsidizing the things that are killing yeah, us yeah. like instead of spending more money on healthcare, spend less money yeah. on the industries that are actually making Jones. us sick. I yeah. know that seems like a crazy idea, but it's like even the progressives, like if you say that to a progressive, like that healthcare spending is not the issue, subsidies are the issue because we are subsidizing the industries that are making us sick. Yeah. Um, I've been accused of terrible things by even raising that. Hmm. But I'm like, why don't, don't, Oh, because apparently it's like, well, also, I mean, like, and again, I agree this to an extent, but like as a cisgendered privileged white man, I'm not entitled to have an opinion about anything, mm. according to some people who've yelled at me. Um, but I'm like, but what if the data all points to something? The data points, like all evidence is that we're subsidizing industries that are killing us. Shouldn't we just stop doing that rather than spend more to like try and treat diabetes and obesity how about here's an idea prevent diabetes and obesity and mm -hmm. i know you agree with me i know people listening agree with me so i'm like preaching to the choir but it's just nice to be able to say that out loud and sure. also express my frustration that progressives aren't more behind this idea yeah you know save money shrink the budget stop subsidizing the industries that are killing us yeah um it is um, pretty disappointing and with, um, unfortunately with... I, I do have to get going kind of soon okay um, I want to ask you about music before we end, but Great. I want to just follow up on that with one thought, which is that to me, politicians have always followed movements. You know, Obama's a great example of this, right? I mean, I, great guy. I, I think he's a wonderful human being. I've met him a um, long time ago, way before he was famous. I think he's genuinely progressive. I think he's trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And 2008 and 2012. But they follow. I mean, the, they follow the, the yeah. movement, whatever the movement, and, whatever and the culture is. I completely say. agree. There are some politicians yeah. who are like, wonderful humans, ethical, yeah. well-intentioned, but ultimately they want to get elected. They want to keep their job. Exactly. And so they will say what, you know. And, they, and if they don't say what they need to say, they will not get elected. I mean, I know this very well. <laughs> I just had an experience where I said what I thought was true and, you know, it, it caused some problems for us. Um, but I guess just from a psychological perspective, someone like Cory Booker is maybe even a better example than Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Because Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have said and done a lot of things mm -hmm. that are not consistent with their values, right? So, you know, Bernie's super anti-corporate, talks about how, you know, we have to fight for the 99%, not the 1%. He's, he's directed hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies to massive dairy farms in Vermont. Mm -hmm. um, Elizabeth Warren, you know. Also, is, Bernie had, I mean, I'm not going to criticize him because yeah. he's obviously got some, had some wonderful ideas. But yeah, he also, and I voted he for, also, him for the record, too. He yeah. also did have a perfect NRA record up until, I, like, he was 
like an NRA poster child for a yeah. while. Like he's he's never really opposed any sort of gun legislation. Wow, I um, did not know that. Interesting. Yeah, up, I think up until like the early '90s, at some point, like he was basically in the NRA's pocket for quite yeah. a while. And I know that some progressives might be mad at me for saying yeah, that, all the but Bernie sadly, girls are it's true. Come after you now, movie. Yeah. Um, just briefly, Elizabeth Warren is another example where she's very known within the legal world, even before she was a politician, as a big antitrust person who doesn't like monopolies and protecting monopolies. She is one of the supporters of the Dairy Pride Act mm -hmm. that basically installed a federal monopoly on dairy and said that no one else is allowed to use the word milk unless you're getting milk from a dairy cow. You know, basically targeted all these upstarts that are trying to disrupt the dairy business with sustainable, ecological, healthier, and obviously more humane alternatives. Um, but Corey's maybe the best example of this, that I'm just wondering if you have a personal thought on this. And, and maybe you can't go into the details because you have a personal relationship with him. I was so psyched when he was asked about veganism <laughs> in the most recent presidential campaign. And his answer was so disappointing. He just completely defected and did not say anything about animals, the environment, or plant-based diets and the importance of the food system. So, I mean, what do you think goes on in a politician's head just in terms of individual psychology? Do you I, have the same diagnosis? Did you have the same reaction? I mean, you can, if you don't I mean, want to share, you don't have to. But Yeah, I, I think that a lot of times with politicians, their goal is to get out of a question as quickly as possible and pr and hope desperately that they're never asked that question again. Like, so <laughs> it's just, it's wiggling. Like yeah, the, you can see that on Cory Booker's face when he got asked this question. I'm just like, it is wiggling. Cause I'm sure that, I mean, I, you know, like, I'm sure that people on his camp, they've talked about it. They're yeah. like, what do you do when you're asked about being a vegan? And like, <laughs> as we've seen, like politicians who stand up for their beliefs tend to not get reelected. And I think there's that devil's bargain that, you know, a lot of politicians, like maybe even J.D. Vance, who knows, are, are saying that like, oh, they're willing to compromise to get reelected so then they can go do good work. Mm -hmm. But then if they spend their entire time compromising, they never actually get the chance to do good work. Yeah. So I, I never talked about it with Corey. I was... I, I kind of just pretended that it didn't happen. It was just one of those moments where I was like, okay, what do you expect? Yeah, you like, got a friend who did something and you, you kind of both know it was shitty and but you I never bring it up again. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I feel like at this point, just politicians, like their job is to yeah. keep their job. Yeah. And they're so, they're so terrified of being primaried, especially now, because yeah. like, you know, like the Democrats are afraid that they'll be primaried by a progressive. The Republicans are afraid that they'll be primaried by a demon, <laughs> by you know, demon. and unfortunately there's precedent for Probably both. True. So. Yeah. You've got to leave 1145, right? A little bit yeah. before that. Okay. So I just want to make sure I have time, right? Um, so I have to ask you about this because we've now had almost two full podcast conversations and I've mm -hmm. said absolutely nothing about your music or almost nothing. I I'm wondering as someone who's been in the music business and, and just an artist, I think for basically your entire life, from what I understand, you started playing piano like what, I nine? I started eight? playing guitar when I was nine. Nine, yeah. And guitar and piano, yeah. yeah. What role do you think music has in social change? Uh, well, that is a wonderful question. Um, and I'd say that there, there are three, oh boy, that's such a giant question because I, I think on one hand, you could say that on a very and this might be a weird answer, on a neurological level, it actually music, I work with the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. It was started hmm. by Oliver Sacks, who's a oh, neuroscientist. Oh, wow, that guy's amazing. Um, yeah. And This is like that neuroscientist who has face blindness, right? 
Is that him? Uh, he's dead now. He, oh, he's he, dead now. Okay, but, but he, like the movie did... Awakenings was based on him. Okay, yeah. He wrote the book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife yes, for a Hat. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, um, he's the guy I'm thinking of. He's amazing. What they've what they've seen with fMRIs and PET scans is that music actually is a very functional anti-anxiety. Like it, mm. it reduces cortisol, it reduces norepinephrine and stress hormones, and it helps to, in order, and so the, what we were talking about earlier, the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe, for these parts of the brain to sort of function, you need to decrease stress hormones. And music wow. is one of the most powerful ways. And everyone listening to this podcast knows that that's true. Yeah. They just don't believe it. Hmm. Like, go listen to your favorite song and tell me, are you more or less stressed afterwards? Yeah, yeah. It's a real healing modality. So that's one aspect of What do you mean they don't believe it? People don't trust things that are not prescribed. Okay. You know, which is also why music therapy has a hard time getting funding because you can't monetize okay. it. So you're saying they go get the Xanax instead of realizing they could just listen to some Mozart and... I mean, the, the example I'll sometimes better. use, even among us sort of progressive new agey types, is like, we will, like, suppose you have a companion animal and a bag of beautiful organic oranges and your favorite piece of music. And so like you leave those in one room and you go into another room to meditate. Mm -hmm. I'm like, actually the things you just close the door on are all profound healing modalities that accomplish the same, like sure. mindfully eating an organic orange while listening to your favorite piece of music and snuggling with your companion animal mm. is more beneficial probably than a rigorous meditation, meditation. practice yeah. if you if you bring the intention to yeah. it. Yeah, I think so, it's a form of meditation. Yeah, and I would yeah. say that there's the, the world, it's part of my spirituality is the belief that like the world wants us to heal mm -hmm. like the world is filled with these everything is is promoting our healing for the most part yeah and we turn our back on it because it's not institutionalized it's mm -hmm. not prescribed whether by a meditation teacher or a doctor or a priest or a politician or like the fact that we don't trust these engines of healing that are yeah. around us and in us constantly so yeah. That's one way that music, I think, can can help save the world. The other is through protest, through, well, as a direct expression of belief through song, whether it's Imagine, whether it's Public Enemy, whether it's Kendrick Lamar, whether it's Neil Young. But the other is leading by example and the power of the audience. Mm -hmm. You know, like it, I'm going to be a cranky old guy again. I watched the Grammys a couple of years ago. And apart from Kendrick Lamar, there's no mention of politics. There's no mention of protest. And I was like, yeah. when did music become so, become so anodyne? When did mm -hmm. like, like music is supposed to challenge people. It's supposed to represent a better future. It's supposed to introduce people to new ideas. It's supposed, especially now when the world is falling apart, like music should not just be this anodyne garbage that people listen to while they're DMing their friends and watching Bridgerton, you know? Like, it's it's so depressing to me that musicians are not using their voice and their platform to mm -hmm. try and, like, address important issues and help make the world a better place. Yeah. Um, I, th I think you know this, Moby, but everyone listening to this podcast has actually just experienced this because about the beginning, the intro and the outro of this podcast is a little a little piece, I don't even remember the name of the piece, but it's a beautiful piece that does get you into that mindset. It's more the first function than the second function. You mm -hmm. talked about how music can be meditative. And I, I found a lot of your music that I enjoy the most is it puts me in a more meditative state, like a reflective state where it does feel like, what? you know, I can, I can just exhale and, and embrace the world the way it is and accept it and even see the beauty in it. Um, and I actually want to play 
one little piece and we'll play a better version of this for the podcast because you know this is not going to come out that well um i know what this is from this is from morningside and i i sent this to you a long time ago because i listened to quite a bit of music i used to actually hate music and now i love music it just my you, relationship was wait, transformed. you hated music i did yeah. actual hate i had i know so, i know a few yeah. people, i know a few people who don't who don't <laughs> Aren't, who don't like you yeah, know, no, that maybe... I stopped listening to music for four years because I hated it I, so I didn't hate it I mean hmm. I didn't like so I my life was very out of control when I was a kid and around my teenage years I started trying to seize control of it mm-hmm. um, I probably had a mild eating disorder I was cutting you could still see the scars on my arms and I didn't like what music would do to me it would just make me feel things and I didn't understand them and it was very upsetting so I just stopped listening to music that's an that's fascinating. Yeah. All because I've had that. I've had that. I've actually had a very similar experience. Oddly enough, with dance music. Really? Like when I. But that's like you. It's, <laughs> that's it's, you. When I was nineteen, I had to drop out of college because I was having these crippling panic attacks. Huh. And one of the things. This is so ironic. One of the things that triggered the panic attacks was electronic music. Was dance huh. music. Only for a little while. Luck. Obviously, okay, I moved you past went, it. You and went then on I to write for another fifteen years. Yeah. Dance music. So. Um, but it's just so, so I remember I was working in a record store and the owner was playing like this, this was probably like 1983, 84, some sort of dance music. And it triggered a panic attack in me. And I was like, wow, I guess I can't listen to dance music. Of course, wonderfully ironic that I then have spent a lot of my life listening to and making dance music. So I'm, but sorry. No, no, no. How did you overcome that? Uh, the way that we overcome almost all panic, exposure therapy. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Like I started hearing it in a benign context that where it didn't trigger panic. Like one of the most powerful things anyone can experience, and I wish we could ramble on about this more, is yeah. transformation of reaction or response. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like for example, one of my biggest phobias used to be of bees. Huh. Like when I was growing up, I was, if you showed me a picture of a bee, I would have a panic attack. Wow. And then when I lived in New York, I had a rooftop garden with all these plants that the bees loved. Yeah. And at first I was so scared of them, but then I spent all this time with them. And now, because we would think that the opposite of panic is not panicking. Yeah. The opposite of panic can actually be loving the thing. Yeah, like yeah. for example, I, was, I thought the opposite of fear of bees would be less fear, fear of, of bees, bees as yeah. opposed to now I love them. Yeah. Like it's, and it's really, it's, it, I hope that everyone experiences that at some point, the transformation of an averse reaction. Yeah. 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 The reason I said, huh, so loudly when you said I had a fear of bees is because last time we were having this conversation on a podcast, you said your spirit animal was a beetle. <laughs> like the little yeah, I beetles that. in Griffith Park that bumble and stumble. And yeah, that's I wouldn't me. have thought that you were like, someone who is at an earlier age, scared of insects to the point you couldn't see No, only see scared of bees. Just bees, okay. And not, wasps. And I still, wasps. wasps. Like, yeah. if you show me a picture of a murder hornet, I would, I will tear my eyes out. Okay. Like, those things terrify me. But, yeah. yeah, one thing I'm that's never, good for me. I, I can I, guarantee you, I will never fall in love with murder hornets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm just going to play you this, and I want to ask you a question about it. But this is, uh, this is actually not actually an excerpt from Morningside. It's just a, a riff that you put in a video on Facebook about how you made Morningside.
So this, I heard this, and I, um, it had exactly the effect you described about feeling less anxious and just feeling better about the world. There was something about this. This is probably my favorite musical composition of the last five years. I've listened to it probably thousands of times. And it's just a little riff. It's not even a song, because Morningside, the full song is very different. And I guess, as someone who has never written any music, I want to try and understand why... Why does music have that effect? Like, what is it about this that is causing well, my frontal lobes to suddenly fill up with blood and my anxiety to decrease just from hearing this? The truth is, no one knows. No one knows. Um, and that, at least not as, I mean, I'm friends with like Daniel Levitin, who's also a PhD musicologist. Um, I work with the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. I would say there's lots of theories about communication, communication over distances, recreation of calming sounds in the natural world, but who, no one knows. But what I do think is fascinating, and this might actually be a nice thing to end on, is having worked in, having been a musician my entire life, having been a music fan my entire life, working with the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, and looking at the way that music affects the brain and body, the the one thing that I real I had this weird epiphany about 10, 15 years ago, and it's going to sound very strange, but basically music has never actually existed. There has never been music. Meaning, wait, wait, what do you mean? If you're a sculptor, and you show me your sculpt. I can touch it. It's corporeal. Mm -hmm. It's made up mm. of atoms. Like music is only the existing molecules in the air moving a tiny bit differently. Yeah. Like when you play a guitar, you haven't created anything. Yeah, All you've done is push air mm -hmm. a little bit differently. Like a jackhammer and a guitar are both working with the same, same medium, yeah. which is air molecules. Mm -hmm. And so that is... When you think about that, that just moving existing air molecules around can make people cry, it can mm -hmm. make people dance, it can make 100,000 people jump up and down in unison. The, mov the movement of air molecules happens in every religious service. Mm -hmm. It happens at births, it happens at funerals, it happens at inaugurations, it happens, you know, it's, it's, it's the fabric of our existence. And I think there's something so uh, liminal is that the right use of that word? I don't know. I like that word, so we'll pretend it is. Um, Sounds good. But that the fact that music has never existed and it will create unbelievably profound physical and emotional responses in people, yeah. I think that that speaks to some aspect of our spiritual condition. Mm -hmm. You know, that like, and it just amazes me that I get to make, I spend my life, like, I work on music constantly, I listen to music constantly. And I feel like I'm in service of whatever that spirit is, the spirit yeah. that is somehow present in non-corporeal art. Yeah. You know, um, hopefully anything I said, hopefully some of that makes sense. But yeah, it's just, it I just think it's, it really is like, it's such a fascinating paradox that one of the most powerful art forms has never actually existed. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. It, I so I told you I stopped listening to music. The reason I started listening to it was I felt like I came to grips with the fact that it is influencing me in ways I don't understand. Mm -hmm. But also is making me feel closer to the rhythm of the universe. And I'm a writer. I don't make music, but I write a lot. And mm -hmm. great writing 
has a rhythm to it. Oh, absolutely. There's a syncopation. There's there's a vibration to it that's really interesting. I mean, um, yeah, word, words. This are, is why poetry is so beautiful. Words this is why are, rap. Is words are music. They are informed music. And I, when I came to understand that, and and music started feeling like it was bringing me closer to some sort of understanding of the world around me, instead of making me feel confused and emotional. Mm-hmm. That's when I started embracing it again. Okay. Um, if you have time, do you have time for one last quick question? Yeah. Okay. My last question is. What can people who care about change, whether it's personal change or social change, learn from musicians? Um, good question. I would say that there are lots of musicians in the world that no one should learn from. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Eminem, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I he's actually think he's, yeah, he's he written some very powerful political music. So I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to mention. I, I don't okay. need. I mean, he's also old like me. Like. <laughs> I don't, you know, two two old white guys do not need to have a reawakened <laughs> feud. Um, but a lo- I mean, like, what we can learn from musicians about change specifically, because musicians kind of change people. I mean, they're changing their emotions. I, I would say, states. like, you have to focus on the people who are actually using their voice and using their platform powerfully and to good service. Like, mm. stay away from the selfish, self-involved. Like, like. Any successful person, especially a successful artist who just uses their success and fame to create more success and fame, like, mm. stay away from them. Yeah. You know, like, and we all know what that looks like, you know, like, people who are more concerned with their status, their fame, their bank account, than with their art's ability to create beauty or with trying to use their platform to make a better place, yeah. make the world a better place, you know, so. I think that's a good general lesson. Um yeah. And of course, everyone listening knows already, like, animals are entitled to their own lives. And in a, in a perfect world, animals should no longer be subjected to human will. Yeah, you're you know? right. I, I hope that everyone listening understands that. And like, the first logical extension of that is stop eating animals and stop eating animal products. Stop yeah. wearing animals. Yeah. You know, that's my life's work. Well, it's beautiful work, Moby, and I appreciate the time you've given us. Yeah, I'm Thank glad we so had the chance to... to, to talk even though it's kind of wet and cold out well it's fun and enlightening and i think hopefully edifying for everyone who's listening to the podcast so thanks moby really appreciate it oh thank you yeah i think that's the second time we've had moby on the podcast and i I always find it so fascinating (laughs) where these conversations go and and honestly just how much moby thinks about issues very far afield from music or even activism you know and i hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as i did I always ask you all to share the podcast with somebody else. So this time I'll ask you to do something else. Rate the podcast on whatever app you use. I actually don't know how much of a difference that makes, but I hear other podcast hosts saying it. So I'm going to say it too. (laughs) under the assumption that it helps other people hear these conversations. And I I would like these conversations to be heard. And I hope you'd like these conversations to be heard too. So if you do, please rate the podcast on whatever app you use. I want to thank everyone who's involved in producing this. Shalal Lafakis is working hard on editing this podcast right now. Caleb Sins was our audio tech for the recording. Thanks, Caleb. Uh, Priya Sahani, Ronnie Rose, Crystal Heat, Julie Waldrop help out from behind the scenes. Um, and then as always, thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>